When tackling an enormous topic like, does God exist? One thing we can't provide is a blanket answer. And that might be the whole point, according to Marcos Torres. The one thing we do ask of you, though, is to come at it with an open mind. Welcome to Science of the Times Radio. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time it is, wherever you are. Welcome to Signs of the Times Radio. My name is Daniel Kuberek, and this week I have a very special guest joining me from WA, and that is Marcos Torres. How you doing, Marcos? I'm doing awesome, man. I just realized both both of us have very exotic names, so this is great. <laughs> yeah, I like your name. It's very cool. I also <laughs> like where you're living at the moment. And I'm liking the fact that I had no idea that our time zones are three hours apart, which kind of just clicked this morning, even though I should have probably already known that. So it's morning where you are, it's afternoon where I am, and we're in the same country. How crazy is that? That's right, man. And, and look, it happens all the time, so it's okay. Don't, don't stress it too much. <laughs> so Marcos, you're a pastor, right? Absolutely. For those who have not heard of you before, how long have you been pastoring for? So I've been pastoring now, if memory serves me well, for I think I'm leading up to eight years now. So I've been pastoring uh, here in Perth, Western Australia. Yeah, eight, just about eight years, roughly speaking. Yep. Wow. So what did you have to study theology to, to become a pastor, right? Did you study that in Australia or, or somewhere else? I studied it in the United States, actually. Yeah, which is where I'm originally from. I'm originally a Jersey boy. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, just 20 minutes out south of Manhattan, if if you need to place it in your geographical map. And then I, I went to school at a university in Tennessee, and that's where I studied theology. And then I moved out here. So it's a bit of a crazy story with lots of backs and forths. And I've been here now for close to eight years, and I love it, man. I love I love living in Australia. Yeah, you're from the United States, and it definitely feels like we're united or sometimes divided states here in Australia, <laughs> in that I can't even come over to visit you even if I wanted to. So that sucks. Yeah, that's but- right. We're in, Perth has become Alcatraz during COVID. So yeah, it's uh, impossible to get in and it's probably not as hard to get out, but definitely hard to get in. Yeah. Well, it's cool to hear your story. I think that would be definitely fundamental because uh, we got you to tackle a really, really tricky topic, which is, does God exist? In an article in, in this month's Signs of Times. Now that's that's like crazy difficult, but maybe just so we know a bit about your story, so we can assess the bias before we really jump into the arguments, I guess, that you present for and against. Now, having read your article, I, I know that you're a very open-minded and impartial sort of person. Has this always been the case? From growing up, did you always accept that God existed or was real or were you sort of confused? Because, you know, you like you mentioned, you eventually studied theology at university. What was the sort of the journey up until that point? Yeah, no, really good question, man. So the journey up until that point was, I would imagine, or the best way I would put it was on cruise control. I didn't really think about it. You know, I grew up in a Latino home. My parents were Christians. They went to church. I went to church and never really gave it too much thought in terms of like, does God exist? Does he, or, or, or does he not? I grew up in a very pre-modern context where that's just not something people wrestle with even people who aren't necessarily, you know, keen on going to church or, you know, being a part of a spiritual community or believing that the Bible is a holy book, even within that context, 
it's still very, very difficult to find, you know, people within my sort of Latin upbringing context that were just straight up atheist. You know, like that was, that was almost impossible to find. Most people believed in God, even the local drunkard, you know, was like, you know, if he saw the pastor walking by, he'd hide his bottle and say, I'm sorry, you know, let me show some respect for the man of God, you know, and that's, you know, a very, very non-Western way of relating to things. So I hadn't really thought about it until I got to university. One of the beauties of university that I hope continues to be a thing is that it challenges your, your thoughts, it challenges your assumptions, and it gets you to, to, to really think and question. And, and I'm thankful that the university I went to, even though it was a theology school I was attending to be a pastor, wasn't afraid to say, actually, let's poke at your belief in God and let's see why you actually believe it. And uh, I was scared, man. I was scared because I had to take this, this class called Issues in Physical Science and Religion. Uh, so physics and religion. And I had to study guys like Richard Dawkins and uh, Sam Harris and, and others as well. And I just remember thinking, these guys are way smarter than me. And by the time this class is over, they're going to totally prove to me God doesn't exist. And then what am I going to do for a career? You know, like <laughs> this is the thing that I've been aiming for for so long. And I'm going to have to rethink my entire life once these guys prove to me, hey, God does not exist. And here are all our proofs. So I was pretty scared taking that class, to be honest. And I took the class, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as we, as we go. I had a, actually had a different outcome. At the end, my, 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 my faith actually became stronger. But that's, yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit more. So was that the first time you heard of these guys like Richard Dawkins? Had you ever heard any of his arguments against religion or against God before that? I had heard of him before, but I was able to conveniently not interact with his thoughts and his ideas. Right. It's not that I wasn't raised in like a sort of repressed, you know, context where, you know, you just weren't allowed to do that. I, I certainly could have. And prior to going to university, I didn't go to university fresh out of high school. I actually spent four years in the army. And so I was surrounded by guys who were atheists and, you know, didn't believe in God and had some of the really hard questions and were big fans of the new atheist movement, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and these guys. So I had heard the questions before and I'd rub shoulders with them, but I'd never actually sat down to follow the rabbit trail, so to speak, and mm. really, really understand where these guys were coming from and, you know, why they had such strong opposition to belief in God. And so while I had rubbed shoulders with it, this was the first time that I was actually going to be immersed in it. And uh, it freaked me out a bit. <laughs> so what did you learn about? Richard Dawkins in particular, because, you know, this topic that we asked you to cover is part of a broader series that we've been running, which is about exploring the evidence for various parts of Christianity that have been attacked in the past. And Richard Dawkins is one guy that keeps coming up over and over again. Like, for example, like just last month, we talked about does religion cause war with another one of our authors. And again, you see Richard Dawkins is the one who's propelling this idea that, in fact, it does cause war. Now, so what he's, he's an 80-year-old guy. He's an evolutionary biologist. What else do you know about him and what sort of did you discover where he's main, I guess, critical points of the idea of God. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I wouldn't want to constrain uh, it to, to Richard Dawkins too much, because obviously he's just one, one brain within that wide world of, of scientific revolution and scientific discovery. And, uh, you know, some of the things I, I discovered about Richard Dawkins during that time, and I was more interacting with his, his ideas. Uh, I say this with respect, because I actually am the kind of person who has uh, a great deal of respect for people, regardless of what their worldview is. If you're an atheist, I completely respect that and, and honor that. If you're a Christian, if you're a Hindu, if you're a Buddhist, you know, that's 
I, I don't like to approach those kind of conversations from the perspective of I've got the truth. You don't, you're down here, I'm up here and I'm just going to school you. I, I don't like to do that. I, I prefer to just kind of journey with people and see where our paths align and what we can learn from each other, where they diverge. And I, I, I think that's kind of like a personality trait of mine. I, I have been like that for <laughs> a long time. And, and I found that I did the same with, with Richard Dawkins. I, I found myself trying to understand what the foundations for his belief were and trying to appreciate and learn and discover, like, where do we converge and where do we diverge? And I share a lot of his critique of religion. I actually think he has a lot of good things to say. Do I think he goes overboard and maybe he could, you know, maybe listen to the historians a little bit better? <laughs> yes. And he himself has admitted he's a terrible philosopher because some of his philosophical statements can be really, really bad. But he is, he is brilliant as what he, at what he does. And uh, I have a lot of respect for him. Hitchens was another one, Christopher Hitchens, who also had a lot of critiques for the way uh, religion has manifested in human history and, and that I thought were really good. And, and for me, I think cradling those uncomfortable aspects of the story and finding a common ground is more important than jumping up to defense mode. Yeah, I've seen a lot of Christians do that. He's like, immediately it's like the, the, the gloves come on. And it's like, well, I'm going to defend the history of the church. I, I'm okay with saying, yeah, it's, it's really bad. And I think it needs to be deconstructed and contended with. And there's things there that we need to repent of for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very a balanced approach that you're taking towards this topic because you're not just straight out rejecting it and then trying to back up evidence to substantiate your rejection, mm -hmm. which is common amongst people of any sort of ideology or, you know, particular belief, which is disappointing because it takes away objective discourse. But just looking at some of these guys and what are some of their main arguments against the existence of God, some of the ones that I've noticed are, for example, that exact one that religion does cause conflict or that why would God allow suffering and those sorts of questions? The other one is that there is not enough objective evidence for God to suggest that he does exist. Now, what are your thoughts on that? And was that something you were challenged with as you were studying these guys? Did that make you think twice? Or what else did you sort of discover? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, look, there was a lot that I wrestled with during that period as I was as I was studying, you know, Dawkins and and Harris and Hitchens, and there was there was another guy I can't remember his name it was an older gentleman and a few others. There was a lot of different things that I wrestled with, and uh, in the article I just mentioned two of them. <laughs> I didn't, you know, because obviously I had a limited word count. Yeah. I just mentioned two of them, but I think essentially the idea of is there enough evidence for God. And for God's existence, it was one that troubled me, but it wasn't at the same time, it wasn't the main thing I was, I was wrestling with. What's the best way that I can put it? I, I think for me, what I, what I felt was you have these really brilliant guys who understand science at a, at a level that I don't understand it. I don't have the wiring to even want to, <laughs> you know, like understand quantum physics and, you know, all that stuff. And I can interact with it a little bit, but I'm just not wired that way. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more wired in sort of like an art, literature, philosophy kind of way as opposed to a science kind of way. But I think for me, when I was reading these guys, what really concerned me was that wasn't so much that they had arguments that denied the existence of God. That, that wasn't really what concerned me. What concerned me was, number one, that I had never, ever actually wrestled with the questions before in a personal way. I had just inherited a belief in God. I had inherited it, and I'd never really challenged it. And now, for the first time in my life, that it's being challenged, 
it's being challenged by the brightest challengers in the field, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I've never ever been in a boxing ring before. And for my first match, it's me and Mike Tyson, you know, it's just like, that's kind of unearthing, you know? And so I, I do think that the lack of space to wrestle with these questions and make my belief in God, something that was personal and rooted in something deeper than just what I had inherited from others was probably the main reason why I was scared. That made me more afraid than the arguments against God's existence itself. And then, of course, the arguments against God's existence were part of it, but they weren't the full thing. It was my lack of never having wrestled with this before. And then on top of that, there's the added stress of, I've kind of banked my whole life on this belief, you know, because I'm in university and I'm enrolled in a theology program. And all I've dreamed of for the last five, six years is being a pastor, you know, <laughs> going around and talking about Jesus to people. So yeah, like if these guys really, if they really hammer me the way I think they will, What's going to happen to my future? Do I just pretend to believe in him anyway? Or do, do I have the intellectual honesty to say, I got to find a new career now and then go through that existential crisis? So there was a lot going on. And when it actually came down to it, and look, I can't remember everything because it's been, this was over 10 years ago. But when it actually came down to it, what I discovered were there were some really key arguments that kind of leapt out at me that I thought were really strong arguments coming from the atheistic camp. And I can't remember all of them. One of the ones I remember is the multiverse theory, which we can talk about in a little bit as, as sort of like an evidential argument. And, and then there was a more like, I don't know if I would call it existential or philosophical argument, but there was the argument that can sort of continue to repeat itself in a lot of the conversations that I was hearing from different atheists of if God does exist, then that makes the universe that we inhabit infinitely boring. For some reason, there was, there was a sense in which knowing that this is uh, caused by a random process of evolution allows us, you know, the opportunity to explore this deep mystery and it's incredible. And the moment you throw God in there, kind of the God of the gaps, right? The moment you just throw God in there, the exploration ceases, you know, it's like, stop asking questions. God did it. That's the end of it. And it's like, they, they really resented that notion that whenever we don't understand anything as humans, just throw up the God card and move on with your life. And, and I could actually resonate with that. I felt like, you know, this, this, this is actually a, a really good point. And, and then fundamentally, one of the things that they kept coming back to as well, and again, from what I recall, and these are in by no means the best of what the atheist camp is contending with when it comes to this conversation. It's just the bits that I remember. I suppose they had a more existential emotional impact on my, on me and my journey. But one of the things that seemed to continually repeat was the notion that if God exists, man is coerced, repressed, and restrained. If God does not exist, man is free and autonomous mm. and has agency. So somehow the very notion of God wasn't, was an existential threat that had to be pushed. We like, we got to move. We're going to move forward as a species. We got to get over this God thing because it's, it's just holding us back. And they had really good reasons for believing that. And, and I, I, I will say to this day, when I, when I talk with friends of mine who are atheists, I, I think that there are very good reasons to justify atheism. Sometimes I hear apologists wanting to, make their case so strongly that they'll say, oh, these atheists, they're just dumb. You know, I, I don't buy it. Like, I, I think they have really, they make really good cases <laughs> that yeah. are worth wrestling with, worth dancing with, worth contending with. If we can do it in a respectful way. And, and again, 
see where we converge and diverge and learn from that. I think there's a lot to celebrate there. Yeah. Well, you've just touched on a whole bunch of interesting things. Just one of them there. I fully agree with you. There's way too many fallacies being spread out in regards to any sort of discussion on this topic, which is, which is harmful for the discussion of the topic because it, it just shows closed mindedness. Like you see a lot of people shut down the idea of God based of one preconceived notion. And then you see the other people who shut down people who shut down God based off of their one thing. But, you know, we have to have the, the open discussion. And you mentioned a number of the theories there that are discussed about whether or not God is real. Now that the multiverse theory is one of them. It is a rebuttal to the idea of God. Hmm. But you found that the way you interpreted it was not actually that. Can you just sort of explain what is the multiverse theory? Yeah, absolutely. And look, before I do that, I'd like to point out just on something that, that you mentioned there at the beginning that I think one of the tragedy of the conversation of, of faith and science, and, and look, I'm not an apologist. It's, it's not my expertise, right? But I do enjoy the discussion. And one of the tragedies that I find in the discussion is that it's been framed as a ping pong battle. Right. Mm. It's, it's been framed as, you know, I'm going to slap my greatest argument to you and then you're going to come with a rebuttal and then I'm going to come with a rebuttal and we're just going to play this ping pong game and, and no one ever really scores. I mean, the person who scores is the person who you most likely want to win. You know, like I've seen this in so many debates between a, a Christian, for example, and an atheist. When the debate's over, all the people who are there who were atheists are like, oh, the atheist guy totally won that debate. And then all the yeah. Christians are like, no, you're crazy. The Christian totally won that debate. And I kind of realized like this is kind of sort of a waste of time, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't like to frame the conversation as a as a ping pong battle going back and forth to see who's going to come out at the top in terms of like who's the smartest, who's got the best arguments, who's got the you know the best uh, constructions. And and sometimes those debates, to be honest with you, the person who wins is just the person who's more gifted at articulating their position. It's not necessarily the you know the person who who is smarter or the person who has better arguments. If you put me in a debate with an atheist. I'll probably lose. I'm not a debater. I just don't have that gift. You know, even though I have really strong belief in God and I have really good conversations with people and can articulate these things very well, debating is just not my gift. You know, so it's just, I find the ping pong thing is a sort of a, a tragic way of engaging such a, such a deep conversation. And so what I prefer to do when I have these conversations uh, again is rather than a ping pong battle, what I prefer to do is I, I like to imagine it as two dancers trying to find a harmony and a rhythm where they can dance together, right? They're, they're individual and they bring their own thing to the table. But as they converse and as they dialogue, the objective isn't to win. The objective is to find a place where our hands can interlock and we can actually waltz together. That, that's how I like to picture these conversations, not just with atheists, but, but, but with anyone uh, of any belief system. And so with that sort of foundation there, I think this is one of the things that I found with the multiverse conversation. There was a lot of ping-ponging going on, but I wanted to find where my experience as a human being could interlock with the experience of the atheist as a human being and, and, and what we could learn from this. And so <clears throat> one of the, the things that I then, and I'll try and keep this as simple as possible, but in the conversation that was taking place, there was basically a very, a very strong, if, if you could say, argument for the existence of God coming from the Christian camp. And that argument was that as we look at our universe, it's been fine-tuned for, mm -hmm. for life to exist, right? 
And so what they meant by that was if you can imagine a giant football stadium with an analog board, if you've ever seen a concert, the little boards they have in the in the audio room in the back with all the knobs and, you know, everything's turned to the proper setting for the guitar and the microphone and all that. Imagine a football stadium that's just filled with those everywhere. Mm. And there's millions and millions and millions of knobs. And all of those knobs are turned to the proper setting. That is essentially how the universe functions. The universe is like this giant stadium with all of these millions of knobs all turned to the right setting. And if you turn one of those knobs a hair's breadth off of its setting, life can no longer exist. And so what this means then is that the universe appears to be finely tuned for life to exist. And so then the question that the theist would pose is if the universe is finely tuned for life to exist, this presupposes that there is a fine tuner. Like, how does this happen by chance? I mean, you could conceive of it happening by chance, but the possibility is so astronomical. It requires more faith to believe it than it would to say there is an intelligent designer who designed the universe, finely tuned it, especially for life to exist, right? So this was sort of the theist argument. And, and I thought it was good. I thought, oh, yeah, that's a good argument. That's, that's awesome. I can get down with that. And then came the sort of the atheist response. And the atheist response essentially was the multiverse theory. And the multiverse theory basically boiled down to our universe is finely tuned for life to exist. But that doesn't mean there's a fine tuner. All it means is that our universe is one of thousands of other universes that have randomly come into existence. And the knobs in all of those universes are turned to random settings. And ours just happens to be one where the settings allow life to exist. Other universes probably don't have life, right? But the settings in our universe just happen to be the ones that allow life to exist. And because it exists and we're here to observe it, we're here to ask these questions. But it doesn't mean that there's a designer, Right. So, so I sat back and, and thought to myself, that's a, that's a really interesting response. But at the same time, and, and again, from my own personal experience, it felt like, well, it was a really interesting response. And I felt like the possibilities were expansive and brilliant. I, I also felt like all they did was kick the can down the road a little bit because my immediate sort of wonder was, okay, so if there's multiple universes, you know, springing into existence, what's causing them to spring into existence? You know, not just one, but multiple ones, endless, you know, thousands, maybe millions. I don't know. You know, like what's, what's causing this spontaneous combustion of universes? And when we talk about a universe, you know, you talk about like gravity and time and space, you know, we're talking about some pretty complex stuff, you know? So what is spontaneously causing these things just to happen? Like, is, is this an accident? Like, is just this accidents tend to be things that kind of happen, not things that just perpetually keep repeating, you know? <laughs> so it, it just kind of maybe sort of sit back and think, okay, this is a really interesting rebuttal. And in some ways it feels like a real giant stretch to avoid the God possibility. It's like, we're so committed to making sure we never embrace the God possibility that we're willing to adopt such a metaphysical and just incredible proposition that is itself loaded with all kinds of problems. I mean, even to this day, the scientific community is divided over whether a multiverse is really a scientific theory or not. You know, that, that continues to be a divisive point. But 
it's like, for me, it was just like, wow, you got to go really far <laughs> to, to avoid the God thing. And, and for me, I, I kind of sat back and thought, well, if the multiverse is real, right? If we do someday find evidence that there are multiple universes, maybe even parallel universes, if you want to get a bit sci-fi, you know, if, if it turns out that that's the case, I mean, for me, it just blows my mind that this God that I'd always imagined was sort of the architect of our universe is actually the architect of so much more and that there's multiple universes and multiple dimensions and that, and that maybe those exist because he wants humanity through the experience of scientific discovery and, and rigorous technological advancement, which I believe are features of the human experience, even in a world without sin, that, that maybe God intended for us to, to exist in, in a, in a, in an endless adventure that moved us beyond our own universe, beyond, beyond our own cosmic neighborhood into different dimensions and, and, and different universes. And I mean, how would we do that? And, you know, I, it's just kind of, you know, so my mind was kind of like, I didn't think of it as a sort of like a ping pong thing, you know, I was like, oh, you know, you guys through the multiverse, well, here's all the reasons why you're wrong. But more of like, okay, that's a really interesting idea. But in many ways, I don't agree that it discredits God. In many ways, I think it expands the way I think about him and and the, the potential that if this is a thing, that he's actually way grander than I, than I could have imagined before, you know? So thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and look, this was 10 years ago. If you immerse yourself in the conversation over multiverse and fine-tuning argument today, it's likely that that conversation has evolved into all kinds of other arguments and propositions and contentions. I haven't kept up with it because my focus is more dealing with or interacting with postmodernism and metamodernism. So I'm sure the conversation has evolved, I guess is what I'm saying from, you know, from, from what it was 10 years ago. The fact that you're even exploring this, it shows that there is a void of one thing, which is the question, who is God? Or if, if we are to define what is God, which we probably should have done in the first place, but then, you know, <laughs> the, there's a debate for a reason there. Mm. And the debate exists because has anybody actually seen God? If anybody looks at religion or what is religion from an outsider point of view and sees that there are, are many different religions and they all refer to God as God noun, or do they refer mm. to God as God verb or adjective or whatever? So in that case, what is God? Is God noun a person? Is God a being? Is it a force of energy? Because there are so many different interpretations of what God is. You're just yeah. talking about God as the force of creation right there. What other aspects do you uh, understand God to be? Yeah, absolutely. So this is actually a really good question. And it's one of the things I find fascinating about the Bible because the Bible never really attempts to defend the existence of God. It just kind of says he's here. And he's the God of our ancestors. He's done this in our world, in our lives, in our, in our history. And uh, yeah, we believe in him, you know, and it's like in the beginning, God, if I were the author of the Bible, I'd probably spend the first few chapters making a philosophical case for the possibility of God's existence before I introduced him as the main protagonist. But here we go in the beginning, God, that's where the story begins. And, you know, come on and enjoy the journey. So yeah, that's, that's a really fascinating question. Who is God? I think is one of the fundamental premises that the narrative of scripture is attempting to unpack. And what you have is a narrative that unfolds over 6,000 years with a historical people, primarily the people of Israel, through whom God is unveiling himself. And, and he does it little by little. 
and in sort of bite sizes. And it, I think to a large degree, the reason for that is because when, when we're talking about God, we're talking about a being. I do believe he's a being. I do believe he's personal, historical, immersed in, in the human story. He's not just a force, not just an energy, right? But conscious, a conscious entity. And that this God is, is actively involved in, in the human story. And so when you wrestle with this idea in scripture, one of the main themes that you see repeatedly is this sort of unfolding or unveiling of what is he actually like? And when you get to Jesus, that's, I mean, that just kind of blows up. You know, he, he says all these things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the father, or, or he'll even go back to the old Testament and do some completely offensive things. Like, you know, you heard it said, but I say to you, it's almost like, Hey, you know, I'm rewriting this thing, man. <laughs> I don't think you're fully getting what I was getting at. So let me clarify it. And then this like this new way of seeing it. And of course, you know, obviously for listeners, I want to make sure that I'm not, uh, going too deep into the nerdy Bible stuff, because maybe the Bible's not a book you've read before. But it gets to the point on this on this final point where one of the main authors in the New Testament, a man named Paul, he grew up a part of the religious class in his society and was very, very familiar with the Old Testament. In fact, most of those people had portions of the Old Testament memorized before they were teenagers. So he was deeply familiar with the Old Testament. And when he encountered Jesus, he kind of goes back and he reinterprets the entire thing. He's like, everything changed in him because he is the fullest revelation of who God is and what he's like. And, and when you see that, when you catch that glimpse, you're like, wow, I got to go back and, and reauthor <laughs> everything I thought was so solid. I think it's a brilliant question because one of the things that I contended with a lot in, in sort of the atheist landscape was not merely the intellectual arguments based on evidence. You know, can we put God in a test tube? Can we analyze him? Can we dissect him? Obviously, everybody knows that that's not a thing. You know, like if there is a being who has created our dimension, he necessarily transcends it, right? In the same way that we transcend the video game worlds that we create, right? You know, imagine a video game character came to consciousness, like the movie Free Guy, right? Like he's not going to be able to put the programmer in a test tube within his video game virtual world and investigate them because they necessarily exist outside of that virtual dimension. And so if this is what we're talking about, God, you know, sort of metaphorically, sort of like this programmer of the dimension that we inhabit, he necessarily transcends it. So obviously, we're not going to be able to study him to that degree. But the thing that I feel constantly sort of came up over and over again in, in the atheist landscape was just a resistance to God because he's a tyrant and because he's cruel and because he's oppressive and if we're ever going to move forward as a human species and develop a society uh, of true equity and true compassion and true justice, uh, a society that moves beyond war and violence and is actually able to find a way globally to advance the human species and maybe even make us multi-planetary as, as Elon Musk envisions, we got to get rid of the thing that's holding us back. And that's this belief in God, you know, this uh, coercive, tyrannical God. And, and you can see this in religions all throughout the world. And I thought to a large degree, they have make some excellent points. Because if you have a concept of God that is fundamentally toxic and coercive, that abstract picture of God will manifest in the tangible ways you treat others. Where did yeah. that idea come from of the tyrannical, coercing, controlling, repressive God? Yeah, that is in itself almost an entirely separate conversation because it's very complex. I, I don't think that there's a singular source. I mean, spiritually speaking, if we read the, the narrative of scripture, it attributes the chaos of the human experience and lies about God 
fundamentally to, to this being called the Satan, right? This angel who rebelled in heaven. The word Satan in, in the Hebrew, it's not actually a name. Some people think it's a name. It's a, it's a title. It means the accuser, right? And so you've got this being, this intelligent, angelic, as the Bible would define him, being for us, it would be, you know, so, sort of a, you know, like if we were to use more like sort of quantum language or science language, we'd probably be conceiving of a, of a, you know, alter dimensional being of some sort, extremely intelligent, who, who was actually in the presence of God and in the service of God, who, who rebelled against God. And that the many of the lies that we believe about God in the world today, the lies that cause and perpetuate injustice and damage and suffering have their ultimate source in him. But outside of that sort of like ultimate source, when it comes to the human experience, I think it's really, really complicated. I think you've got history at play. I think you've got trauma at play. I think you've got politics at play. You've got institution at play, economics at play. If you can develop institutions, religious institutions that monetize people's guilt and shame, and there is a vested interest in keeping them in that state, because that's how you can build your cathedrals and finance your holy wars, then there's a vested interest from the elite class to make sure people continue to perceive of God this way. And that's a very complicated experience because, again, economics is at play and infrastructure is at play and politics is at play and nationalism is at play. So many things are at play, right? So I don't know that uh, I can fully answer the question of like, where does it come from and how did it develop in, in today's episode? Because that would be almost a separate episode on its own. And, and so in many ways, to come back to the whole idea of atheism, when I interact with atheists and they say, oh, I don't believe in God. And Ty Gibson is a pastor who, who I actually learned this from. He met an atheist on an airplane. He said, I don't believe in God. And he asked him, well, can you explain God to me? Oh, you know, this tyrannical, you know, cruel being and all these different things. And Ty being a pastor says to him, hey, you know, I'm a pastor, but I'm an atheist too, because I, I don't believe that God exists either. And the guy was like, what are you talking about? You know, and it's like, well, you know, I mean, if that's who God is, no, of course he doesn't exist. Like that's, you know, horrendous. And I think when it comes, you know, again, to bring it back to the atheist sort of milieu, I see that a lot. There's this sort of a resistance. There's a, there's a rage that I think is endemic or, or indigenous to the human spirit that says we cannot coexist peacefully with the idea of a being who tortures people forever and ever and who employs the legislative arm of the state to enforce and coerce his morality or his idea of morality onto people. And the history of this is ugly, you know, in, in, in the West, the history of colonialism and all these different things that have happened throughout time. And there's a resistance and a sort of a rage to that. And I fundamentally believe that that resistance and that rage that many of the atheists feel in their, in their rejection of God is itself a fingerprint of God in them. That we were not designed to to be under submission to some tyrannical force, but we were we were designed to to flow organically and harmoniously with nature, with one another, and with our Creator. And when the Creator becomes this tyrant, there's a natural uh, repulsion within us, and that natural repulsion, I think, is 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 a part of divinity inside of us, right? It's a you know, I think it's uh, Solomon in the Old Testament who says God has placed eternity in the human heart. And and I think what he means by that is that there is something within us, even in our fallen state, that is reflective of our creator, you know? It's reflective of who he is and what he's like and how he designed reality. So I share that. I sh I share that resistance. I share that protest with many in the atheist community to say like we cannot sit comfortably by these ideas of God that cause damage and, and, you know, perpetuate injustice on the earth. 
where I part ways is I don't think that we need to then throw God out. I think we need to discover who he really is, peel back the layers of institution, the layers of empire, the layers of history, and find underneath of that all of that the gold of, of who he is and what he's actually like. And I think our best shot at doing that is in Jesus, who is the fullest revelation of who God is. What I see in you, Marcos, is a person who appreciates the mystery. And this is mm. something that's fundamental to exploring God, because you mentioned a, a whole great number of ways that in which God has been dismissed and why, and why do we generally have this perception of God as, as being the bad guy? One of the other ways is I think we don't like to know that there is something that is mysterious. You know, mm. as human beings, we want the answer. We want to put it in that box that we understand and to dismiss something rather than to explore it in all of its complexity is far easier than to actually go and do that. Because one of the key themes of your article is that exact thing that would require a lifetime of exploring. And a lifetime is a long time. And in this quick fix culture where we want the answers now, that's kind of a difficult thing to understand. And one of those big mysteries that I think is, you know, argued for and against is the idea of infinity. Now, that for me is one of the most challenging ideas about God. I don't know what it's like for you. You just mentioned in the Bible that God has always existed. You know, a, an atheist would argue against that and saying that if God created the universe, then that he must be as complex as the universe, but then something must have created God and that thing must have been as complex as God that created the universe. How can God have always existed? Or the idea of omnipotence, God's power. Well, couldn't he therefore create something more powerful than himself? As humans, you and I, we were born, we're going to die, right? Mm. And everything around us has a start and an end point. You know, you buy a phone, it dies. You buy a new one, it dies. Like we're used to the idea of putting things in a timeline. What do you think about this idea of, of infinity? Do you think it's one that we dismiss a lot of the idea of God because we cannot understand it. We don't know anything that is infinite within our lives that is around us. Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I do. I think I'll interact with your question a little bit more. And then I want to I want to make a point. One of the points I make in the article about Dr. William Provine. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Because William Provine had this idea that I mentioned earlier that if if God is responsible for the creation of the universe, then he couldn't think of anything more boring, right? There couldn't possibly be anything more banal than that. And so, you know, he would, he would even say like, I can't even be bothered thinking about it. I just can't imagine anything more boring than the idea that God created the universe. You know, it's the idea that it's sort of like this, you know, chance of nature is what he found a lot of exuberance in. And so I'll come back to it later, but essentially, yeah, I, one of the things that we have to wrestle with, and, and I think that this is something that really keeps me humble is that when we're talking about God, we have to understand that we're talking about a being who transcends the physical dimension that we inhabit, which means that the laws that apply to this physical dimension don't necessarily apply to him. And I'm not talking about moral laws because I think the moral laws of our dimension are an extension of his heart. So I think we're perfectly justified in expecting God to be in alignment with the, the moral expression of love as, as Jesus expresses it in the New Testament, loving your neighbor as yourself. But in terms of like the physical laws, I'm very cautious with this because I, I recognize that religious people like to jump on the quantum physics bandwagon pretty hard and physicists find it absolutely annoying. I don't believe quantum physics proves the spiritual dimension. So I don't want to use it in that sense, but I do want to look at it and say, look, here's some things that at least challenge us. And so what we see in, in the, in the, you know, realm of, of quantum physics, 
are a number of things that don't make sense in the physical dimension that we're used to. You know, for those who are unfamiliar to quantum dimension, you know, metaphorically speaking, it's sort of like the basement of reality, right? It's smaller than atoms. You know, if you're going down into like the base of reality to try and understand what's at the very foundation, what's at the very bottom, you're going to go way past atoms and, and the nucleus and protons and stuff that you learned in science school when you were in fifth grade. You're going to go way past that and into the quantum realm. Which is, which is something that has, uh, you know, really baffled the scientific community and, and trying to understand it and trying to explain it. And you get into things like string theory, which is sort of like a, a, a sub layer of that that tries to explain that, which they're still trying to work out, you know, very interesting stuff there. But essentially in, in, in the quantum realm, which again, if you want to think of it as the basement of reality, there are things that take place that scientists observe in the quantum realm that just don't make any physical sense, you know? Does this prove spirituality? Oh, of course not. That's not the point I'm making. If God created our physical dimension and he created the basement, the quantum realm that is at the foundation of our physical dimension, if we struggle to understand that which has been created and we struggle to find the language to explain it and the illustrations to explain it, how much more difficult will it be to explain him? I mean, he's the mm -hmm. designer of this thing. You know, he's, he's the mastermind behind it. And so one other idea that has really been challenging for me as well is our human language. Like our human language has been 100% top to bottom evolved within our limited physical dimension. So even our human language is limited in its ability to explain that which is outside of this dimension. Mm. If I said to you, I want you to describe to me a color you've never seen. How do you do that? Like you can't. Because you've never seen, you wouldn't have developed the vocabulary or the prose or the sentence structure <laughs> to even begin to explain reality that way. And we see that even in our own world, like with different cultures, Western people, we tend to think of time as, as very sort of linear, you know, like we, we, that's how we perceive of time. Whereas many indigenous cultures don't see time as linear. They see time in, in a different way. And so what that means is the language that they develop and how they communicate is actually evolves in a different direction to the way we as Westerners communicate, because they're not communicating with this construct of before, after linear time. They're communicating in more cyclical terms, whereas we're communicating in more linear. So like even within our own <laughs> you know, dimension, we, we have these tensions. And I think like even our language is going to be limited. Even our language is going to have a boundary in its ability to describe and explain the infinite that we're going to hit that boundary and say, I can't, can't really go any further than this. Like, this is the best my vocabulary can do, you know? I watched a movie a few years ago and then rewatched it in the last week called Arrival. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's I think so, the, yeah. The alien yeah, one? Yeah, the, it's about aliens yeah. who rock up on Earth. And it's the movie is all about communicating with these aliens. Hmm. You see <laughs> the aliens, in some ways, it, it made me laugh because it's like the way that we try to communicate or understand God. Like, in, in the beginning, the humans are trying to communicate with the aliens in, in human terms, like that a, a word is a sound uh, that is then put on paper and they, they're trying to find out the, the alien's language. The aliens are like squirting out this like black dust thing that turns and creates language. But the, the aliens, they're, they're actually non-linear. Their language is infinitely more complex than the humans. The humans are trying to grapple their head around it, but they, they can't really. They can kind of only get a little glimpse because it's just completely different. 
is this something that's left out of the discussion in our understanding of God? And if so, how do we even reconcile that? Where do we even start to try to understand God then? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's two things that, at least for me, that I keep in tension. Number one is what I believe, because I believe God wants us to understand him. I believe he wants to be in relationship with us and relationship is presupposed on the capacity to understand one another. And so I believe God wants wants us to understand him and he wants us to be in relationship with him and communication with him. And so for me, this is partly how I see the Bible, that the Bible is God's self-revelation to us, but he's translated it to our language, mm. right? He's translated it to, to the human experience. He's translated it to human culture. And that, that that is actually really helpful for me because it allows me to appreciate scripture without becoming dogmatic and rigid in terms mm-hmm. of my understanding of God, because I can understand like, look, God is like, he's toned this down big time for me. So before I go and be all arrogant about how mo- much I know God, I should remember that he's speaking to me in elementary terms. Cause that's, you know, I'm so poor at understanding, <laughs> you know, the infinity of who he is. So it keeps me humble in that sense. And, and to recognize that for eternity, I'm going to continue to learn. And I'm going mm. to continue to discover things about God that I think are going to be absolutely mind blowing. You know, I don't, I don't think we can be really begin to appreciate what eternity will be like. We tend to think of eternity in very, very, very sort of narrow Eurocentric ways. Like, oh, we're going to live in a castle somewhere with a nice garden forever. It's like, I, I don't see it that way. And I honestly, I, I want to thank the scientific community and the atheist community because in many ways, I think they've helped expand the way I perceive of eternity. And so, you know, like, for example, you know, one of the, one of the questions that I wrestled with as I was, as I was communicating and, and, and dealing with sort of like the atheist milieu was, you know, imagine, you know, let's go back to creation. God created the earth and he created humanity and he told humanity, I want you to be fruitful, multiply and replenish the earth. Okay. What would happen when they did that? They were fruitful. They multiplied. They replenished the earth. I mean, the earth is obviously a limited physical organism. Eventually overpopulation was going to be a thing. Mm. So what's God going to do now? Like, okay, I just a mass vasectomy on all the males on the planet so that there's no more kids and, you know, no more cows and no more sheep and no more dogs because overpopulation was, you know, becoming a problem. Or did God originally intend for humanity to then, in light of this challenge, put their brains together and develop the technology capable of becoming an interplanetary species, Mm. right? That would actually travel to different worlds, terraform them, multiply beauty on them and continue to repeat the process throughout the universe, throughout the cosmos. And then if you throw in a multiverse, you know, it's, you know, like, I mean, this would be an endless adventure, Mm. right? An endless getting to know an endless discovery of endless mystery. And if you can imagine a world without sin, without death, without suffering, without injustice, where people can actually work together, where nations aren't hogging resources and, you know, fighting over limited supplies and, and people are actually sharing with each other. And, and you know, the, the capacity to advance as a species would make our greatest contributions to the world of, of technology today seem like a joke. But I would have never arrived at that panoramic picture had I not been, you know, in conversation with <laughs> with atheists who who are are also seeking for ways in which humanity can move beyond this sort of like primal violent state and and reach a level where we can finally work together and you know move into you know become an interstellar community. And so when I when I thought of these ideas and I thought of scripture, I was like, wow, you know, maybe there's a reason why the universe is so big. Maybe it's meant to be our playground. You know, and, and maybe, maybe our universe is just the start of it. You know, mm. maybe there's way more. And it brought me back to this question of, and this has been a bit more of a spiritual question. It was like, okay, so if this is the case, if this is a possibility, what is there in this world that's worth missing out on that? 
Mm. You know, like, can you point me to one thing in this world that is like, this is more valuable than that? Mm. It's like, ah, yeah. I mean, when you put it that way, not, not, <laughs> you know, I don't think there is. And, and the, the opportunity to, to be a part of what God originally intended, I think is, is meant to be this like infinite adventure and infinite falling in love and infinite, you know, growing in knowledge and, and infinite advancing. And that's just within a, a sort of a physical universe. Who knows what multidimensional ideas God has in his mind? You know, it, it, I mean, we're talking about eternity here. You know, like there, the sky is not the limit. There is no limit. You know, it's just like this, this would be incredible. And, and then to think, of course, in, in a, in a, in a perfect universe with, with where death is not an, a present enemy as the Bible describes it. Time is not something that really comes into, into consciousness. I mean, time is, is taking place because there's before and after, but it's, it's unlimited. And so how will that then shape the way we build societies and communities and develop language when you have, where, where time is not an enemy that you're constantly racing against, right? Mm. Uh, where like I could go and say, Hey, you know, Daniel, I'm heading off on some adventure. You know, I'll be back in a million years. And when I come back, you're just as healthy and young and happy. And, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, what would that be like, you know, mm. and how would our expression and, and culture as a human species change? And, and then I just think about our own world with all of our limitations and all of our challenges and all of our struggles. And you look around and you see so much diversity on planet earth, music and food and language and dances and so much diversity and color and expression. What would it be like if we were a multi-planetary species? I mean, like, what would that diversity look like? I, I can't even begin to imagine, you know? So, so yeah, like I, I think that this experience is what God originally had in mind for us. And I think this is one, one way in which I actually can appreciate when the atheist says, I don't like it when Christians don't understand something and then they just throw God into it and stop thinking because I don't believe that that's what God wants. You know, I believe that he wants us to explore. He wants us to ask questions to not just say, Oh, we can't understand it. It must be God. No, like dig deep, peel back the way he's designed it, peel back the layers of that onion and discover what he's got in there for you. To, to experience and to learn from and to grow. Is that your recommended starting point? Because for a lot of people, just to put it into really like pleb layman's terms, like when I sit down and w- want to watch something on Netflix and I see at all the possibilities of everything I could watch on Netflix, I just give up because I don't know where to start. So mm. when we like look at the infinite possibilities <laughs> of understanding God, what do you reckon is a good place to start? I've heard from people that they felt God in nature. Like we've got an article mm. coming up where one of our authors, he describes this moment where he stood on a mountain and just mm. felt God in the majesty of it all. Yeah. Is it that or even like we were talking about earlier, people who might have resistance to the idea of God because of things that happened to them before might be personal yeah. hurts by institutions, things like that. In that case, even before they get to the stage of, of exploring the idea of God, is there resources that you can mm. point them to that could help maybe heal some of those uh, points of mistrust before they mm. even get there? Absolutely. Yeah. Look, the starting place is going to be different for everyone, right? It's going to be unique to, to the individual's experience. So for some people, the starting place might be healing wounds, spiritual wounds, religious abuse, processing, contending with and healing those things. For other people, the starting place might actually be like, I've met people who have been not necessarily, you know, victims of religious or spiritual abuse, but burned out by conventional Christianity and church and institution. And for them, their starting place is to just unplug and experience God in nature 
and get to know God for themselves and just kind of like recover a bit. And, and, you know, for other people, maybe they're coming out of that and they're starting places to plug into a local church and start serving their city and doing something meaningful for, for humanity. So it's, it's just different for everyone. But at the very foundation, I'd say, if, if anyone is really struggling to identify, like, where, where is the starting place for me? Like, where should I begin? What I would often recommend to people is like, if you're really stuck and you just don't know what the next step is, get to know Jesus. Mm. Get to know Jesus because he is the clearest revelation of who God is, right? He's the most fundamental and, and beautiful expression of the heart of God and the character of God. So if you're feeling stuck and you're like, well, I don't really know where to go next in my walk with God. Man, just open up a Bible, read the Gospels. I don't know. Watch The Chosen. I, like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, just get get to know Jesus. And what you'll find, and this is a deep belief of mine, is that God does not inhabit a, a frozen state of you know, sort of like removal from human history. There's there's a deep mystery in Scripture that I can't fully explain that that shows us that God is not bound by time like we are, but He is nevertheless immersed in it and involved in it. He's not in some other frozen timeless realm, like the Greeks pictured him where he can't actually interact with humanity. He's here. He's historical. That's why the Bible says, you know, when the Bible authors speak about God, they say the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what are they doing? They are, they are localizing God within the human experience. That's what they're doing when they say that, you know, they're, they're saying like, he's historical. He's, he's, he's walked with us, you know? I mean, you know, you got Jacob with his limp, you know, walking around like the God who dislocated his hip. Like, what, what does that say about the fact that, like, I actually fought with him and wrestled with him and he dislocated my hip and I still held on to him and, and I challenged him and then he blessed me. And it's just like, this is a historical being who's immersed in the human experience and who leaves his fingerprints in the lives of people. When our hearts actually begin to crave God and we're like, oh, I'm going to check out, you know, Faith FM or I'm going to listen to this interview and figure out what's going on because I'm, I'm searching and I'm seeking and I'm exploring. This is actually evidence that the spirit of God has crossed that chasm. And so he's already present in your life because if he wasn't, if he hadn't crossed that chasm and come looking for you, and if, if he wasn't awakening within you a desire for him, there wouldn't be an indigenous desire in us leading us to him, right? Mm. The craving for him is is an evidence of his presence already within us. And, and Jesus talked about this. He said, you know, no one can come to me unless my father in heaven draws him. You know, what Jesus is alluding to is this idea of this chasm is like we exist within our consumer driven system and we're sort of perfectly content there, but God crosses that chasm and he knocks on the door of the heart. And all of a sudden we're like, huh, yeah, I wonder, I wonder about God. I wonder if I should get to know God, you know, or I have this craving, this desire, this sort of transcendental or spiritual or cosmic, and I can't quite put my finger on it. And my suggestion would be, at least in my estimation and evidence that the spirit of God is already present and he's already awakening you to his desire to be in relationship with you. So you don't have to find him because he's already find you, found you, you know? And and so now the next step would be to say, all right, let me open myself up to this experience and get to know who he is. And and I think turning to Jesus, it is the best place to start, you know. I, I do want to guide anybody who is in that sort of frame of mind or that phase of life where they do want to be open to that idea to understand God more. In your article, if if anyone wants to jump onto our website and find the article, Does God Exist?, at the bottom of the article, though, there is two links to two courses that people can sign up for that is completely free. One of them is about discovering God's plan for your future, discovering who God is, is God in control? And then another one is based off of this television series called Beyond the Search. So you can do also another free course there, which is about tackling the question, because that's what ultimately we were talking about here. Marcos, 
honestly, like your article and, and even this podcast, it's not about providing just a blanket answer, which I think is the beauty of it. It's about tackling the question and, and exploring for ourselves, not hoping that someone is just going to hand it to us on a nice dish. And I think that's, that's a beautiful sort of metaphor for what life is like. The more I think we're going to appreciate God in his entirety of his form. So I, I really do appreciate that you have joined us on the podcast. Now, if anybody is in that stage where they're going through things like spiritual trauma or are still sort of struggling with the idea of spirituality. So you, you have your own podcast that, that people can tune into as well. Can you just tell us a little bit about that podcast and where people can find it? Sure thing. Yeah. So I, I've, I have a podcast that I do with a friend of mine who's a life coach. His name is Joel Brown. And we, we linked up together, I think at the beginning of this year and began to uh, record a, a set of conversations about God, specifically geared for people who didn't grow up in church and who are curious about God, or maybe people who did grow up in church and had just had a horrible experience. So we're, we're kind of talking about God in, in a more healing sense. And so the name of that podcast is the Unknown God Podcast. There is another podcast called The Unknown God that like recorded like eight episodes and then stopped like five years ago. <laughs> so that's not ours. Ours is probably like episode 30 by now. And it's, it's got a, a black and gold logo that says The Unknown God. So you'll, you'll know it when you, when you find it. So yeah, just that's check that Spotify out. Spotify stuff. It's on Spotify. It's on iTunes. Yeah. Wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're struggling to find it, just go to, you can go to my website, pastormarkt.com. So that's pastormark, M-A-R-C, and then just the letter T.com. And that's, that's a space where I actually connect with people who are processing spiritual wounds, people who've been through religious trauma. And I, I just use that space as a, as a spiritual coaching space. So if you feel like that's something that you need, uh, it's all there. Just, just go to pastormarkt.com. And there's a sort of an Instagram link as well, where I share a lot of thoughts about God and Jesus and, and things that uh, may, may be of interest for those who are seeking. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, it's been a pleasure to have you in, in all of your wisdom and understanding to join us here today. Uh, you're a legend, mate. Thanks so much for, for joining us. And uh, I really appreciate that you've written this article for us and, you, and you're joining us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate the honor. Thank you. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au in Australia or signsofthetimes.org.nz in New Zealand.